Chapter Seventeen of Erewhon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Neil Donnelly. Erewhon by Samuel Butler. Chapter Seventeen. Idgrun and the Idgrunites. In spite of all the to-do they make about their idols, and the temples they build, and the priests and priestesses whom they support, I could never think that their professed religion was more than skin-deep. But they had another which they carried with them into all their actions, and although no one from the outside of things would suspect it to have any existence at all, it was in reality their great guide, the mariner's compass of their lives so that there were very few things which they ever either did or refrained from doing without reference to its precepts now i suspected that their professed faith had no great hold upon them firstly because i often heard the priests complain of the prevailing indifference and they would hardly have done so without reason secondly because of the show which was made for there was none of this about the worship of the goddess idgrun in whom they really did believe Thirdly, because, though the priests were constantly abusing Idgrun as being the great enemy of the gods, it was well known that she had no more devoted worshippers in the whole country than these very persons, who were often priests of Idgrun rather than of their own deities. Neither am I by any means sure that these were not the best of the priests. Idgrun certainly occupied a very anomalous position. She was held to be both omnipresent and omnipotent, but she was not an elevated conception, and was sometimes both cruel and absurd. Even her most devoted worshippers were a little ashamed of her, and served her more with heart and indeed than with their tongues. Theirs was no lip service. On the contrary, even when worshipping her most devoutly, they would often deny her. Take her all in all, however. She was a beneficent and useful deity, who did not care how much she was denied, so long as she was obeyed and feared, and who kept hundreds of thousands in those paths which make life tolerably happy, who would never have been kept there otherwise, and over whom a higher and more spiritual ideal would have had no power. I greatly doubt whether the Erewhonians are yet prepared for any better religion, and though, considering my gradually strengthened conviction that they were the representatives of the lost tribes of Israel, I would have set about converting them at all hazards had I seen the remotest prospect of success. I could hardly contemplate the displacement of Idgrun as the great central object of their regard without admitting that it would be attended with frightful consequences. In fact, were I a mere philosopher, I should say that the gradual raising of the popular conception of Idgrun would be the greatest spiritual boon which could be conferred upon them, and that nothing could effect this except example. I generally found that those who complained most loudly that Idgrun was not high enough for them had hardly as yet come up to the Idgrun standard, and I often met with a class of men whom I called to myself High Idgrunites, the rest being Idgrunites and Low Idgrunites, who, in the matter of human conduct and the affairs of life, appeared to me to have got about as far as it is in the right nature of man to go. They were gentlemen in the full sense of the word, and what has one not said in saying this? 
They seldom spoke of Idgrun, or even alluded to her, but would never run counter to her dictates without ample reason for doing so. In such cases they would override her with due self-reliance, and the goddess seldom punished them. For they are brave, and Idgrun is not. They had most of them a smattering of the hypothetical language, and some few more than this, but only a few. I do not think that this language has had much hand in making them what they are, but rather that the fact of their being generally possessed of its rudiments was one great reason for the reverence paid to the hypothetical language itself. Being inured from youth to exercises and athletics of all sorts, and living fearlessly under the eye of their peers, among whom there exists a high standard of courage, generosity, honor, and every good and manly quality, what wonder that they should have become, so to speak, a law unto themselves, and while taking an elevated view of the goddess Idgrun, they should have gradually lost all faith in the recognized deities of the country. These they do not openly disregard, for conformity, until absolutely intolerable, is a law of Idgrun, yet they have no real belief in the objective existence of beings which so readily explain themselves as abstractions, and whose personality demands a quasi-materialism which it baffles the imagination to realize. They keep their opinions, however, greatly to themselves, inasmuch as most of their countrymen feel strongly about the gods and they hold it wrong to give pain unless for some greater good than seems likely to arise from their plain speaking. On the other hand, surely those whose own minds are clear about any given matter, even though it be only that there is little certainty, should go so far towards imparting that clearness to others as to say openly what they think and why they think it whenever they can properly do so, for they may be sure that they owe their own clearness almost entirely to the fact that others have done this by them. After all, they may be mistaken, and if so, it is for their own and the general well-being that they should let their error be seen as distinctly as possible, so that it may be more easily refuted. I own, therefore, that on this one point I disapproved of the practice even of the highest Idgrenites, and objected to it all the more, because I knew that I should find my own future task more easy if the high Idgrenites had already undermined the belief which is supposed to prevail at present. In other respects, they were more like the best class of Englishmen than any whom I have seen in other countries. I should have liked to have persuaded half a dozen of them to come over to England and go upon the stage, for they had most of them a keen sense of humor and a taste for acting. They would be of great use to us. The example of a real gentleman is, if I may say so without profanity, the best of all gospels. Such a man upon the stage becomes a potent humanizing influence, an ideal which all may look upon for a shilling. I always liked and admired these men, and although I could not help deeply regretting their certain ultimate perdition, for they had no sense of a hereafter, and their only religion was that of self-respect and consideration for other people, I never dared to take so great a liberty with them as to attempt to put them in possession of my own religious convictions, in spite of my knowing that they were the only ones which could make them really good and happy, either here or hereafter. 
I did try sometimes, being impelled to do so by a strong sense of duty, and by my deep regret that so much that was admirable should be doomed to ages if not eternity of torture. But the words stuck in my throat as soon as I began. Whether a professional missionary might have a better chance I know not. Such persons must doubtless know more about the science of conversion. For myself, I could only be thankful that I was on the right path, and was obliged to let others take their chance as yet. If the plan fails, by which I propose to convert them myself, I would gladly contribute my might towards the sending two or three trained missionaries, who have been known as successful converters of Jews and Mohammedans, but such have seldom much to glory in the flesh, and when I think of the high Edgarnites and of the figure which a missionary would probably cut among them, I cannot feel sanguine that much good would be arrived at. Still, the attempt is worth making, and the worst danger to the missionaries themselves would be that of being sent to the hospital where Chowbuck would have been sent had he come with me into Erewhon. Taking, then, their religious opinions as a whole, I must own that the Erewhonians are superstitious, on account of the views which they hold of their professed gods, and their entirely anomalous and inexplicable worship of Idgrin, a worship at once the most powerful yet most devoid of formalism that I ever met with. But in practice things worked better than might have been expected, and the conflicting claims of Idgrin and the gods were arranged by unwritten compromises, for the most part in Idgrin's favor, which in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred were very well understood. I could not conceive why they should not openly acknowledge high Idgrinism and discard the objective personality of hope, justice, etc., but whenever I so much as hinted at this, I found that I was on dangerous ground. They would never have it, returning constantly to the assertion that ages ago the divinities were frequently seen, and that the moment their personality was disbelieved in, men would leave off practicing even those ordinary virtues which the common experience of mankind has agreed on as being the greatest secret of happiness. Who ever heard, they ask indignantly, of such things as kindly training, a good example, and an enlightened regard to one's own welfare, being able to keep men straight? In my hurry, forgetting things which I ought to have remembered, I answered that if a person could not be kept straight by these things, there was nothing that could straighten him, and that if he were not ruled by the love and fear of men whom he had seen, neither would he be so by that of the gods whom he had not seen. At one time, indeed, I came upon a small but growing sect who believed, after a fashion, in the immortality of the soul and the resurrection from the dead. They taught that those who had been born with feeble and diseased bodies and had passed their lives in ailing would be tortured eternally hereafter, but that those who had been born strong and healthy and handsome would be rewarded for ever and ever. Of moral qualities or conduct they made no mention. Bad as this was, it was a step in advance, inasmuch as they did hold out a future state of some sort, and I was shocked to find that for the most part they met with opposition, on the score that their doctrine was based upon no sort of foundation, also that it was immoral in its tendency, and not to be desired by any reasonable beings. 
When I asked how it could be immoral, I was answered that, if firmly held, it would lead people to cheapen this present life, making it appear to be an affair of only secondary importance, that it would thus distract men's minds from the perfecting of this world's economy, and it was an impatient cutting, so to speak, of the Gordian knot of life's problems, whereby some people might gain present satisfaction to themselves at the cost of infinite damage to others that the doctrine tended to encourage the poor in their improvidence, and in a debasing acquiescence in ills which they might well remedy, that the rewards were illusory, and the result, after all, of luck, whose empire should be bounded by the grave, that its terrors were enervating and unjust, and that even the most blessed rising would be but the disturbing of a still more blessed slumber. To all which I could only say that the thing had been actually known to happen, and that there were several well-authenticated instances of people having died and come to life again, instances which no man in his senses could doubt. If this be so, said my opponent, we must bear it as best we may. I then translated for him, as well as I could, the noble speech of Hamlet, in which he says that it is the fear lest worse evils may befall us after death which alone prevents us from rushing into death's arms. Nonsense, he answered, no man was ever yet stopped from cutting his throat by any such fears as your poet ascribes to him, and your poet probably knew this perfectly well. If a man cuts his throat, he is at bay, and thinks of nothing but escape, no matter whither, provided he can shuffle off his present. No, men are kept at their posts, not by the fear that if they quit them they may quit a frying-pan for a fire, but by the hope that if they hold on, the fire may burn less fiercely. The respect, to quote your poet, that makes calamity so long a life, is the consideration that though calamity may live long, the sufferer may live longer still. On this, seeing that there was little probability of our coming to an agreement, I let the argument drop, and my opponent presently left me with as much disapprobation as he could show without being overtly rude. End of chapter 17